celebration for the Acts 13 experience. That's a discipleship, uh, I guess they, they called it a program, so I'll use that program, but they've been developing through our association. Nate Templin and others have been leading out in that, and Allison was a part of that this year, and so we went to the celebration. Beautiful home, beautiful backyard up in Belmont. They had these wonderful lilac bushes. They were so pretty, just lovely. And I learned, though, within a few minutes, those beautiful things wanted to kill me. And um, so, and then yesterday it was similar. I, I, I was up on, some of you, you know, it's okay. I made it through, I'm back down. I didn't fall off. I was on the roof dealing with swamp killers. I elected to deal with swamp killers so I didn't have to deal with the bushes because these juniper bushes were doing the same thing. Uh, so I, I feel Zach's pain and drop into the Basso Profundo. That was, that was nice, Zach. It worked. Because, man, if I start coughing today, I am sorry, but the air, as Allison said a few weeks ago, is poison. All right. So, um, Galatians, that was an incredible introduction to a sermon, I know. Galatians chapter 2. Um, let's, uh, let's go there. This is uh, a remarkable passage. We see some personalities shine through in the, the apostles, and we see the boldness of a true disciple of Jesus Christ and being faithful to what we know to be the true gospel. Um, so Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to go through verse 14. I thought about breaking that up a little bit between verses 1 through 10 and then 11 through 14, but really they're dealing with the same issue in those two passages. So uh, we're going to attempt to get through all of that this morning invite you to stand as we uh, go through God's word together in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And, that, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, he, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Lord, thank you for your word and for the freedom we have in the gospel. Thank you for the redemption that we find through Christ and the law. And I pray that today we see more and more of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the things you see and you hear about in, in people's lives is how when, when they fall on hard times or going through struggles, and it's really more in probably previous days than it is today, that what you ought to do is go to church. It doesn't happen quite as much today. Our culture is a lot more secular than it was perhaps even just a few years ago. But you can kind of understand the motivation behind it, especially for those who understand faith in Jesus Christ. There's a problem with that assertion, though. It's that simply going to church doesn't do much. Just walking through a set of doors into a building won't change you. It's the substance of who is there that changes us. The world sees Christ through Christ's church. We even talked about this morning in our class about how church is a people. It is not a place. Now, we may call this the church house or the church building or the church. Or, you know, we talk about it at our house. I mean, we live next door. We go over to the church all the time. But in itself, that this building, when there's nobody else in it, is just brick and mortar and timber and electrical wiring and, and whatever. Because the church is the gathering, the people of God. And it's those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, in the first century following the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, they were still working out about how to describe the fulfillment that they saw in Jesus. And that's what we find here in the gospel. And this is what we find in Paul's letters here, especially the early one here, Galatians. And you see this picture in, um, he did, this isn't the only time he addresses this, but Galatians and Romans, he really goes strong into dealing with the law versus grace. And here, we see a little bit more biographical information. This is actually one of the more biographical, uh, autobiographical writings we have from the Apostle Paul. And we see that he is telling some of his story and some of the challenges he made. And there's some interesting characters that pop up in this story that you've probably seen somewhere else in the Bible. There's a guy named Barnabas. You heard of that guy? He's the guy who befriended Paul and said, no, Paul is saved. Paul is going to be a missionary, and he goes with Paul on his first journeys. You see Titus, who Paul writes a letter to later in the New Testament. Titus was a young Gentile, and we're going to learn more about why that mattered. But he was somebody that Paul led to faith in Christ, who ends up being a pastor. You hear two names for the same person. Who is that? Cephas or Peter. It's the Aramaic or the Greek name that we see. Cephas and Peter are the same character. And one of the interesting things as I look at this passage is how Paul used both of the names. You know why he did? Me either. He just did. He used two different names uh, for there. But it's the same name. It means rock. It means Peter's, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 16, the the confession that Peter makes, he says, 
you are Peter, and upon this rock I built my church. It's a confession that Peter makes that Christ is the son of the living God. And so he changes his name, Simon Peter. And he calls him Cephas here. He got some issues along the way. You also see James. Now the James that we see here is not the James that's in the apostol or the disciples band that you know, like we've been watching the chosen and hearing about Big James. No, that's not him. The James that we hear about here is the one who shows up in Acts chapter 15 that they describe as the Lord's brother. Mary and Joseph had children following Jesus. And the two of the New Testament books that we have, James and Jude, are believed to be written by those brothers. And so you see that there are different characters that fly in along the way here. And one of the reasons I find it interesting is that simply Paul doesn't do that very often in the midst of teaching. He'll talk about them in introductions and he'll talk about them in greetings at the end and things like that. But he doesn't bring in a story, so to speak. He is very didactic. He just, you know, usually just brings the theology. And most of us by the end of it are going, yep, we get it, Paul. We get it. Okay. He's that super smart professor that you could never really keep up with in class, right? So anyway, it says after 14 years, and uh, the, the, chance, the, the chances are here there's, there's two, other, two, two possibilities here. It's either before or after his three-year visit to Arabia where he learned as God taught him how the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What, whichever, it's a significant length of time. Think about your life 14 years ago not the same as it is today. You may live in the same house, but, you know, I, I've gotten to think, I've been seeing all these kids graduating from high school. They're like five. How can they graduate from high school? It happens fast, right? Things change quickly. Paul had seen a lot of life and learned a lot about his faith in this intermediary time between uh, his conversion and now his letter to the Galatians. After 14 years, he goes up again to Jerusalem. He goes there twice. He took Barnabas with him and Titus along with him. He went up, it says in verse 2, because of a relation, revelation and set it before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, whether it's this exact moment or not, the church had spent a lot of time making sure they understood what they were to proclaim to the whole world, beyond just the Jewish people, that Jesus came to save everyone. And that's an important thing to realize. Because if Jesus just came to save the Jews, it would change how we interpret a lot of the scriptures. But no, he came to fulfill the law, which was from the Jews, in order that the whole world might come to faith in him. Now let's go back a little bit to Acts chapter 14 and read a couple of verses there. And we're not going to go through all the way through Acts 15, but it is an interesting read, Acts chapter 15 is. Um, because this is one of the instances where Paul, Barnabas, and others came to the, the leadership in the church in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's the location where it all started. Right? And now that air is blowing in my face. It may start coughing. I'm sorry if I do. But we see that there is a controversy afoot in verse 27 of chapter 14. It says, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that all, 
all, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no, no little time with the disciples. And then verse 1 is the turning point of this discussion. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There lies the problem. They were teaching that you had to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. Now, it got a little personal then. Right? I'm not going to dive into the whole issue here, but you are smart people. Now, first of all, how in the world would they know that they're circumcised? Don't tell me. But there is a problem with this because of who Jesus came to preach to. He came and brought salvation to more than just Jews during his ministry. You'll see that he, he speaks to the Romans along the way. We see that, in the, especially in the book of Acts, we see that we have all of these moments where he is, where the, he is proclaimed to Gentiles, to Greeks, to those who have no foundation in the Jewish faith. Jesus, as he taught throughout his ministry, did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, Paul teaches, and this is what the church comes to terms through in Acts 15, he comes to terms with the fact that circumcision is no longer necessary because salvation is not done, is not through any work that we have done. It is by the work that Christ has done for us. And so when we come to this place, we, we got to realize that there was something special about the Jewish people. And, and think about where it all started with Abraham. You heard of him, I hope, right? His name was originally Abram. He married a lady named Sarai. And they ultimately become the, the founding couple of the Jewish faith. And the sign by which that is uh, secured was that of circumcision of the males. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a, an adult male, going through that particular procedure would be, to me, an act of faith. Because it would be painful, and you don't really know how things might end up. You know, it might, be, it might cause some problems, right? But what we find is that obedience itself, Abraham's act of obedience, showed his faith in God. So salvation, and you can dive into Romans and you get a little cliff notes of it here in Galatians, but salvation has always been by faith. And that circumcision was a sign of the promise of the covenant that God had made with his people. Jesus had come to fulfill that. He had come and lived out the law perfectly. And he shows that this is something that was always meant to be a step of faith. Uh, a couple of Old Testament spots deal with that. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. I'm not going to dwell on these places, but I want to show you some of those things. We do have those verses available on the screen. But Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, this is in the midst of the second reading of the law from Moses, just before the children of Israel enter the promised land. 
God tells them, uh, the header in verse, above verse 12 says, to circumcise your heart. And we're going to come back to that picture here. It says, Cir circumcise in verse 16, therefore the foreskin of your hearts and no longer be stubborn. So the picture of this act ultimately has nothing to do with anything on the outside of the body, but the transformation of what happens inside our lives. Not talking about the physical organ of the heart, but the life, the passions, the desires that we are. And so when we talk about that circumcision, it's the, the setting our hearts into a, a point of faith and trust in God. Um, in Jeremiah, going to the prophets, chapter 4, it's a little more abstract here, but we'll see what we can do with it. In Jeremiah chapter 4, it says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall be their glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go, before, go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So, what we're really looking at is a, is a step of faith, a step of trust that shows our belief in what God has brought us in salvation. And so the, the desire of even the law and the prophets had nothing to do with an outward action, but everything to do with what we know and believe. It has to do with changing the very core of who we are. And this picture is that it's something that covers up our, our, uh, our faith, or covers up our, our own personal desires. And yet God is the one who brings us to that place of belief and trust in him. The circumcision of Abraham was an act of faith, and as were the times described in the conquest of Canaan. In another time, uh, the, uh, the children of Israel had gone throughout the wilderness at, at the Exodus, and before they entered the promised land, they, all those who had been born in the wilderness had to be circumcised. And so these acts of obedience were performed to show the trust the children of Israel had in the Lord. The things that we do show that we trust our Lord. Let me say that again. The things that we do show our trust in the Lord. So whatever we think we are accomplishing by showing how clean and pure we want to be, it doesn't matter if there hasn't been a heart change. If Christ hasn't redeemed our lives and we now live to bless Him. It's all about what He has done for us. Paul kind of dwells on this issue because over and over he runs into opposition with it. And we go back to Galatians to see some of that problem. He, remember who Peter is? He was the leader of the apostles. And Paul describes Peter's ministry here as the one, as a ministry to the Jewish people, and Paul's ministry to want to those of the Gentiles. Now, we actually see that in history, all of the apostles kind of went a different direction geographically. 
we see that uh, these different uh, points of faith are are pushed throughout the known world of the day. It's believed that even that uh, that Andrew possibly made it to Scotland. That's why the the Scottish flag is that inverted uh, white cross on the blue background. That's Saint Andrew's cross. It's called. It's believed that Thomas might have made it as far as India. It's believed that Philip and the Ethiopian, you know, sent it down into Africa. They were all about fulfilling the commission that God had laid upon them in Christ. And what is that great commission? To go and baptize and make disciples. So they they went in obedience and trust in him. And But Paul, along the way, and in the, the book of Acts, we see this picture that Gentiles start receiving salvation, but they don't become Jews. Again, I'm thankful for that because I'm a Gentile. I don't look Jewish at all. God has brought salvation to the whole world because of the obedience of the Son. And that is Jesus. It says in verse 3, Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So uh, he, he kept having all of these this opposition fly in here on it. Verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, we, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So, uh, these pharisaical folks that they end up calling historically the Judaizers came in to this church in the Galatians, to, uh, the church in the Galatians and also throughout Asia Minor, and we're saying, no, you got to become a Jew first. And Paul, in the kind, Paul's not nice in some ways. I don't know if you've noticed this. But in, in, in some vernacular of past days, we might call this hogwash. Right? This is a waste of time to try to follow the law in order to find your faith in Christ. What the law does. The law is good. Even even the New Testament says the law is good. What the law does is it shows us that we can't. And we were talking about that in our class this morning, is that one sin will lead to another one, will lead to another one, and a lot of times you get so far down the road you forget what the first one was. Sin is what kills us. And the law shows us our sin. Christ fulfilled the law, overcame all temptation, so that we would know the way. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our grace. And so, um, we get into this argument that was a strong one, and and actually we run into those kinds of problems today. And it's one of the reasons we get into different denominational circles and, and things like that, is that people view their own interpretation as absolutely flawless. Now, I've Paul mentioned earlier, being from the Baptist perspective, I'm about as Baptist as it can get. I mean, my, my mama was bringing me, I might, if they had the crib roll or the, or the pre-crib roll or, or whatever that was, I might have been on it. I've been going to the Baptist church my entire life. Only a handful of times have I not been in one. And so when we see that, we say, oh yeah, he's got it figured out. Well, well, maybe we missed something. 
I've heard it said that if you look at Bibles from around the world and people that underline things, you might get the whole Bible underlined if you brought it all together. Certain people dwell on certain things in certain ways. But salvation is always the same. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone. Through Christ alone. Because He is the fulfillment of the law. So, his mission, Paul takes issue with this because his mission is to take the gospel to the uncircumcised. And he sees it as ridiculous to require that uh, act for anybody who would come to faith in Christ. And to be perfectly honest with you, I have no interest in going to that ceremony. I just don't. If that is a requirement to become a Christian, count me out. Now the picture of baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for us. That's one of the reasons we baptized by immersion, is that we believe that he was buried and that he rose again. And it's a picture of the cleansing that is offered to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is a sign of the covenant that God has made for us in salvation. However, that water does not save you. Salvation is still only by faith. It's a sign of our covenant together as we come in together in baptism. It's how we identify together as the church. It's a, it's a sign of submission to the Lord and obedience to His command, as we, as we often say in that water. Because obedience itself, at its root, is an act of faith. It's trusting the one who's given you the command. So we submit ourselves to the Lord and our sign of that is our baptism. Does that make sense? Process that? Bob said yes. That's good. Process through that. Now, here is the issue. Is that even the smartest and wisest and most well-learned can fall to a popularity that's what we find in the, the remainder of this passage in verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, I'm going to go to verse 9 now. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they had two different jobs. One was going to... Jewish people, one was going to Gentiles. Only they, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, if you go into the book of James, what does it say? It shows us pure and undefiled religion to take care of the poor and the widow in their time of need. That has been an expression of our faith in God the, it, throughout history and throughout the scriptures, is that we are to care for those who are in need in order to proclaim the good news of salvation. But we can get caught up in trying to say, no, that's not the kind of person we would minister to, or this and that, or whatever. And it, it even fell on Peter. Verse 11. But when Cephas, as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Paul, I've always pictured it like this, and the Chosen's changed this picture a little bit for me because of, of Simon Peter, and he's a short guy. But I've always pictured Peter as this big old fisherman. 
right? And I always picture Paul as this little nerd doing this to Peter, opposing him to his face. Now, obviously, we don't have, a, you know, photographic evidence of that being the case, right? But I see that here is that after a certain amount of time, Paul knew the gospel as well as Peter did, and he called him on it, called him on his sin. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? That's a bold thing to say to Jesus' right-hand man. But for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So he was eating with Gentiles. He was in Antioch. Antioch is north of, uh, it's in Syria, north of Judea. It's a Gentile population. But when they came, that is the people from James, that is people from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing them. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So leadership matters, right? They saw what Peter was doing. Peter was this rock, right? They named him that. And he's pulling back. And so what did they do? This is why we have to be really careful about how we read the scriptures. Because sometimes the way we, we try to proclaim the gospel, the way we live it out personally, we, we live by that conviction for certain reasons. But it may not be absolutely scriptural, our personal conviction. So we might lead somebody astray. You may decide that you're not going to partake of something because of this conviction in your life. Maybe it's even scriptural, the things that you see. But ultimately, the question is, is your action proclaiming Christ in their life? Because if it's drawing them away, you are defeating the purpose of that action. Our task as followers is to go into the nations and make disciples. And so we are to live out our lives in a way that is different but we have to make sure it's scriptural. And let it, absolutely so. But when I saw that their conduct in verse 14 was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What did he mean by that? Do you remember in Acts when Peter had that dream and the sheet was lowered? What was on that? everything that you could possibly eat. Every creature. And Peter says, whoa, wait a second, Lord. <laughs> I'm clean. And God says to him, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And so now Peter ate bacon. Praise Jesus. But in this place, it wasn't because of a conviction. It was because he was scared of being mocked. He was scared of being judged by those who would come and say he has to fulfill the law. Paul had nothing for that. He went and he stood up to Peter because Peter was wrong. You see, that that's called accountability. That's called friendship. That's called brotherhood. That's why we have the church. Because nobody is above making a mistake. But we better make sure how we apply it is what this word shows us. Because it may just be a personal conviction and not a scriptural, scriptural conviction. Paul, he said, 
he, he drew reference to this meeting they had in Jerusalem that Peter was there and said, no, take it to the Gentiles and don't require that they fulfill the law in order to be saved. And that doesn't mean that sinning is okay. That, and Paul deals with that in chapter 5 very vividly. Very vividly. But what he says is that the things we do do not save us. It's who we believe Christ to be. Our personal actions as Christians show who we trust. They do not bring us salvation. The question today is, are you trying to follow all the right rules in order to look right before the world? Or even before God? The problem with doing that before God is that the Spirit knows our hearts. what does he tell us? He tells us to circumcise our hearts. Change who we are because of our faith. To proclaim the gospel honestly. To come to faith through Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for the cross, you can be saved. Even you. Even I. not by anything that we do here in this flesh. It's by His work in our hearts. So, the good kind of circumcision is the one on our hearts. It's where God makes His mark in us. And how we show that is how we live out our faith. Do you trust Jesus today? Or are you trying to put your salvation in the hands of your own behavior. I got bad news if that's the case. Well, I do have good news, but the bad news is that doesn't work. The good news is Christ did it for you. Will you trust Him alone? Lord, you are good and you are faithful to us. I thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the salvation that is only a product of a gift forgiveness of our sins by the shedding of the blood of our Lord. 